Well, I remember my wedding day vividly. The sun was out. The sky was blue. The birds were singing. There was a song in the air. Literally, a song in the air. So we had live music throughout our whole ceremony and the reception. The venue was an old Baptist church. Oh, it was beautiful, elegant. My bride, Kate, oh, was radiant. It was a glorious day. And it was also an amazingly weighty and sobering day. Because at the heart of my wedding day, of our wedding day, was a set of promises made to one another. And over the years of marriage, we have discovered that those promises were really said on that day in preparation for two kinds of day that would come in our life together. They were said for those days when the sun is out, the sky is blue, the birds are singing, there's love and joy and peace and kindness and comfort in the air. But it's also, those vows are also, those promises are also for those days when the sky is dark and when trials and troubles come and there is great uncertainty. Oh, on those inevitable days, those promises that we made to one another are all the more important. Those covenant promises bring a certain amount of certainty and comfort in the midst of that uncertainty, in the midst of those trials and troubles that would come and have come. But what if we're talking about the Christian life? What if we're talking about those dark days and troubles that come into our lives no matter our age or stage of life? Oh, in the midst of seasons of uncertainty, where can we find certainty and comfort? Can we? And if we can, what promises has God made to His people to remember and to rehearse and to rest and find comfort in? Well, please open with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. We're going to be living in John chapter 14 today. And we're going to be walking through the whole chapter. But please follow along as I read just the first four verses. And we'll all be helped to keep our Bibles open to this chapter this morning. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. This is God's word for the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the hearing and the applying of his word this morning. Father, thank you for your good and profitable word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would turn the lights on in our dim hearts and minds. That you would increase our faith. That you would cause us to put away distraction. And Lord, we ask that you would cause us to see your glory in the face of Jesus this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, just to catch us up, because I don't know about you, but I've slept since last week. We have been making our way through the gospel according to John. And the the series that we've been in is titled Behold. Because in every chapter, in every verse of John, we behold the person and work, the claims and the signs of Jesus. And on every page from, from John chapter 1 to chapter 13 thus far, we have come face to face with the glory and greatness of Jesus, with His authority and His divinity, His compassion and His care, His character and His conviction, His mercy and His grace. And last week, we stepped through the doorway into the second half of John, into what has been called the Book of Glory. And we stepped into a room called the Upper Room. And this morning, we return there, and we get the joy of sitting with the 11 disciples to hear from Jesus' farewell sermon. And for context, Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet, foreshadowing his work in the gospel. And then he gave them and all his people the blueprint for cross-shaped love and what it looks like which is the distinguishing mark of God's people, both individually and collectively. But if you remember, in the midst of all of of that in chapter 13, Judas has begun his work of betrayal. Jesus just told Peter that Peter is going to deny him three times. And on top of all of this, Jesus has told the disciples that he's leaving soon. And where he is going, they cannot come. At least, not yet. And just put yourself for a moment in the shoes of the disciples. You can sense, you can feel the confusion, the fear, the discomfort, the anxiety. The the uncertainty is palpable at this point in the gospel. But it's here in this uncertainty that Jesus speaks. And he gives his people, then and now, sure promises of certainty and comfort. And that brings us to really the main point 
of John chapter 14 today. Here it is. In seasons of uncertainty, the promises of Christ bring certainty and comfort. In seasons of uncertainty, the promises of Christ bring certainty and comfort. And we see this in the passage. We see this through three promises given to God's people in uncertain and uncomfortable seasons. First, we see the promise of a better home in verses 1 through 4. Then the promise of a better hope in verses 5 through 14. And then the promise of a better helper in verses 15 to 31. That's our outline for this morning, so let's get going. Point one, the promise of a better home. Well, here in verse one, we just read, in these first handful of verses, we just read that the hearts of the disciples are anxious and uncertain about the future. Why? Well, they have just left, left everything to follow Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to leave you. And they're distressed and fear is overcoming them, and, and trouble has found them. But notice here that Jesus doesn't leave them in trouble and anxiety. He sees their hearts. And he speaks. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That redundancy is intentional. He is saying, believe me. Trust me. Have faith in me. And so what is the medicine for a troubled heart? Something that we have all experienced. What well, is Jesus? And deep belief and faith and trust in him. Oh, it is true, as it has been said, that the answer to trouble is trust. Well, let's be clear. This is not a belief and trust in God that is a kind of holy escapism. Here's what I mean by this. A kind of, well, Lord, I'll trust you if you just give me an escape route from whatever circumstance I'm in. Just get me out of here and we're good. Nor is this a kind of belief that is a coping mechanism of shallow a kind of belief and faith that says, well, I or you just need to have a little more faith and it will all be okay. Nor is it a kind of belief that is a, a kind of toxic positivity. Toxic positivity, as it's been called. A kind of belief that says, well, you just need to turn that frown upside down. You're blessed. Why are you troubled? Because God's got this. I'm sure that we've heard or, or seen or even thought of some, some of those things. In a world that idolizes control and comfort in the midst of discomfort, particularly here in the West, we must reject holy escapism 
or we must also reject the coping mechanism of a shallow faith and toxic positivity. These are not what's going on here. No, the belief and trust that Jesus is encouraging us in here is a living, active, dependent, abiding trust in Jesus that He is who He says He is. That He will keep His promises in this life or the next. And that He is able, more than able, to work in and through our deepest troubles. And so the question is, when trouble and uncertainty come, beloved, where do you go? Where do you go? Where do you turn? Where do you find certainty and comfort? Do you turn further in to to yourself? Further into your mind? Do you turn to social media? Or video games? Or Netflix? Do you turn to alcohol or food? Do you turn to your, to your money? Well, let's look at my account in the stocks today. Do you turn to other people? Oh, these will not bear the weight of your trouble. So in a season or seasons of uncertainty, go to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Open His Word, which is a letter of comfort to you from Genesis to Revelation. Read of His promises made and kept and pray the imperfect disciples' prayer. Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Further, if you are in a season of deep anxiety, deep depression or or pain, I would encourage you to go talk to your primary care doctor as well to seek counsel and pastoral care and counsel. Even here from HFBC, we are here for you. We'll notice that that Jesus doesn't stop there. He grounds deep belief in Him and the promise of a better home. The verse 2, Father's house, where there are many rooms. And the verse 3, place that He would prepare for His people. Now, many read these verses and jump immediately to heaven. And and that's, that's fine. That's fine. That's not necessarily wrong. But there's even more here in the present for us. So let's dive further into these verses. Where else, I ask, where else has Jesus used this language of Father's house already in the Gospel of John? Well, back in John chapter 2, verse 16. There we read of Jesus in righteous anger overturning the temple and driving out those who were using it for commerce and blocking Jews and Gentiles from proper worship. And there Jesus declares, take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a place of trade. And then in chapter 2, verses 18-22, to Jesus goes on to say that the temple would be destroyed. But that it would rise again in three days, referring to Himself, the true temple. Making it clear that He is the Father's house. And so picking up that same language here, Jesus is saying, in Me there are many rooms. 
There is abundant space for all of my people. But in order for you to abide in me, I must go and prepare a place. I must go and prepare the place. The question is, how would he prepare that place? Well, in the words of one pastor and theologian, by going to the cross and coming out of the tomb three days later. And then, ascending, in verse 3, coming again to take his people personally to himself, to be with him eternally. And so, do you see what Jesus is promising here? He is saying that I am the better home. Past, present, and future. And so, no matter what trials and troubles or temptations or tribulation you encounter in this life, when you are weak and overcome by unbelief, when the waves of anxiety or depression or grief are causing you to spin out of control, when your debt struggles are just out of hand, when you face the deep loss of a friend or a family member, and their absence is haunting, when you are facing sickness or battling emotional, mental illness in your family, and it's just wearing you down, when your marriage and family is just not really where you want it to be, when your children or spouse are spiritually wayward and there doesn't seem to be any hope in sight, when your future is uncertain and you are struggling with control, Jesus is saying here, believe me, abide in me. Even when it seems I am absent, and I promise to come back to you, to bring you to myself, and you will abide in and with me in eternity. So what do weary Christians on a heavenward pilgrimage through this life need to hear in the midst of trouble and uncertainty? The promise of a better home in and with Jesus now and forevermore, no matter what comes in this life. So hear the promise of Christ to his people then and now. For here he is saying that I have prepared a place for you through the gospel. You already, verse 4, know the way. And though I may be physically absent, I am not spiritually absent because I'm going to return, and I will return, to bring you further in and further up into me, and you will abide in and with me eternally. Beloved Christian, this promise is for you on the bright days and the dark days of this life. And it's ultimately for you even in death. And this ought to lead us to a confident, brighter, and better hope for today and tomorrow. And that brings us to point two, the promise of a better hope. Verses 5 through 14, look there with me. John 14, 5 through 14. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, do know him. You do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, the Father, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, in response to this encouragement and promise from Jesus of a better home, Thomas is still uncertain. He has been called Doubting Thomas after all. And he asks, verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And it's in verses 6 through 7 where Jesus gives his sixth I am statement and promise of a better hope. He says to Thomas and all of his disciples, then and now, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you know me, then you have seen the Father. And we must recognize here is that what Jesus is doing, he is hitching this I am statement to the previous promise, but then also hitching it to what, he, what was said back in John chapter 1. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the passageway, the door into the presence and eternity with God. I am the way to the tree of life that Adam and Eve and you were cut off from because of sin. He's saying, I am the way, the ladder of John chapter 1, verse 51, between heaven and earth. He's also saying that I am the truth. I am, as was stated back in John chapter 1, 17, the one full of grace and truth. That truth that is revealed in God's Word. And Jesus is saying, I am the life. For as it said, Back in John chapter 1, verse 4, in Jesus there is what? Life. He is the resurrection and the life. And from Him and in Him and through Him alone can spiritual, eternal life come. Oh, in a world full of false ways of salvation, in a world full of false truth, in a world full of false pursuits of true life. Jesus is saying that He is the only way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. This is an exclusive claim. And there is no other hope. Our good works will not save us. Our other lowercase gods, our idols, even other world religions, will not save. Growing up in a Christian family, hearing some things about Jesus, and kind of knowing them, knowing the facts about Jesus, will not save you. Simply going to church on Sunday morning will not save you. 
being a good person will not save you. No, Christ alone is the way to salvation. Now, it, it would be one thing for Jesus just to kind of say this, right? And then kind of move on. But He doesn't just say this. He ultimately revealed this in real time, in real history, in real action in the Gospel. And here is the good news of the Gospel. That in the beginning, God created man and woman, Adam and Eve. And He placed them in a beautiful garden called Eden. But they disobeyed God. They rebelled against Him. They denied the good and gracious authority of God over their lives. And and sin entered the world. And it's not just Adam and Eve who have sinned. We know from Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone in this room is a sinner in need of grace. And we will all one day die and face judgment. But God, being gracious and merciful, prepared a way when there was no way. For He so loved the world that He sent the promised serpent and sin crusher of Genesis 3.15. He sent His only Son, Jesus, into this world. And Jesus lived a sinless life. And then He went to the cross. And there He suffered and drank the, the cup of God's wrath against sin and death for sinners. Once and for all. And there He died. But He didn't stay dead. For He got up three days later from the tomb. He got up in power and glory and all authority. And why did He do this? Well, He did this to prepare a way for sin-sick sinners like you and I to be reunited with our Creator. To be reunited with God. And so, how should we respond to this Gospel? We should respond to this by repenting of our sin, turning away from all those ways that we have chosen our own way, our own truth, our own false version of life, and the fleeting pleasures of this world, and turn toward Jesus by grace through faith. Because He is our better certainty in the midst of uncertainty. He is our hope in the midst of hopelessness. He is our comfort in the midst of all discomfort. And Jesus is the promise-making and promise-keeping One. All praise and honor and glory to Him. And if you are here today and you do not know Jesus, then you must know that none of the promises of John 14 belong to you. And so, if you are here today and you want to know more, you want to know Jesus, you want to, to come to know the way, the truth, and the life, then hear His summons today. Here's invitation today. I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk with you more about Jesus and the gospel. You can find another elder, another pastor here. We would love to talk with you. Or find another member here at the church that's smiling while I'm giving the good news of the gospel. We would love to talk with you. Well, there's even more promises here. There are even more promises here of hope for God's people. For even after Jesus departs and ascends into heaven, as projected here, Jesus has proven to not only be the way, the truth, and the life in salvation, but He is also the way to greater fellowship with God. We see this in verses 8-11. through 11. He is the way to greater fellowship with God. He is also the way to greater works. We see this in verse 12. 
and He is the way to greater communion with God in prayer. We see this in verses 13 through 14, as we just read. So let's briefly work through those. First, Jesus is the promised way to greater fellowship with God, as we see in verses 8 through 11. At this point, in light of Jesus' claim to be the way, the truth, and the life to the Father, the narrative shifts, and uncertain Philip, doubting Philip, like uncertain and doubting Thomas, says, okay, well, I hear what you're saying, Jesus. Uh, We've seen you, and I know you're saying that we've seen the Father. That's great. But really, verse 8, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. Well, again, praise God for examples of imperfect disciples like Philip. Can you identify with him? Philip wants to see the Father. He likely, as many have pointed out before me, has, has in his mind those appearings from the Old Testament. Like the, way the, the way the Father revealed Himself to Abraham in Genesis 18. Or Moses in Exodus 3. Or Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Philip wants to know and see the Father. He wants certainty. Can you relate? Well, Jesus gently rebukes him. He says, have you not heard and been with me this whole time, brother? Come on. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. You're asking the wrong question because I and the Father are one. He's saying, I am God. And to have fellowship with me, to find your house in me, to come to know the Father is to know and see and have deep fellowship with the Father through me. That's what he's saying here. For I am, verse 11, doing the Father's work, which, side note, includes all of Jesus' earthly works, all of his earthly ministry. And it's Jesus who reveals the Father's character to the world. And because of this, we can therefore believe in Jesus, even when he is physically absent from us. This is what Jesus is saying here and, and assuring his, his disciples of. And so what's the application for us? Well, do you wish to have deeper fellowship with God? Everyone in this room that's a Christian should be nodding their head. Yes, yes. Then open God's word and pray. Show me Jesus. Help me see Jesus. Conform me further into the image of Jesus because he is the greater way to greater fellowship with God. Second, Jesus is also the promised way to greater works in verse 12. Here, Jesus promises that even in his absence after he departs and ascends to the Father, the disciples will do the same, did you notice? The same and even greater works as he. Now, the burning question is, what are these greater works? That is heavily debated. There's a lot of ink spilt on this. Well, they're not, as some some say, the ability to heal and do miracles like Jesus. Otherwise, where were all the faith healers during the time of the bubonic plague or the purple death of 1918 or in the worst of COVID-19? I mean, come on. So what are these greater works? Well, they're put forward in John chapter 5, verses 20 to 23. You don't have to turn there, but they give us the answer. Those greater works are the proclaiming of life and judgment in Christ to the honor and glory of Christ. And so, those greater works that the disciples would would go out and do, 
are all chronicled for us in the book of Acts. Acts is fundamentally a book about the great works or acts of Jesus through the words and acts of the apostles as they proclaim the wonderful works of God and they proclaim the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. And so what is the takeaway for us? Well, every local church made up of Christ-believing, gospel-professing, baptized Christians, whether they're gathered or scattered, is invited into the Great Commission, is invited into this call by Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth, to go out and proclaim the message of the gospel, the message of life and hope in the midst of life and death to a lost and dying world. And so do you know what that means? We are fulfilling this now. We're doing the greater works right now as a body of believers here in Hillsborough, Oregon. Praise God. What mercy, what grace. What a privilege. Well, third, Jesus is also the promised way to greater communion with God in prayer. It's fascinating here how, how Jesus kind of just moves, kind of slides right in to talking about prayer. And notice that for, for Jesus, prayer isn't an option. It's an imperative for communion with God. For he knows that fellowship with God and the proclamation of the gospel can only happen and be ultimately fruitful by starting on our knees, by starting in prayer. So how should we understand Jesus' words here on prayer? Well, it has been noted that this does not mean that anything named and claimed in the name of Jesus will be given to you. As one pastor puts it, Jesus has not promised to answer all our prayers for happy, wealthy, trouble-free living. But he does promise to answer prayer for the giving of glory to God. So what Jesus is saying and confirming here is that there is power in prayer. When it is prayed in the name of Jesus, notice there, in the name of Jesus, and prayer that is aligned and brings glory to the Father through the Son. Because that kind of prayer will be answered in accordance with God's word, will, and way in his timing. And that's a promise. So here's the application for us. We ought to pray boldly. Which is why you're invited to come and pray with us at 4.30 today right over in that room. It's also why every Sunday in the center of our service we do what's called a pastoral prayer. A time where we go before the throne with our prayers and petitions and praises not only our city, but also the world, and for our own church, that we be a faithful witness to the gospel here in our city. For ultimately, at the end of the day, all of our ministry is based upon this better hope and this greater comfort that Christ alone can bring. Now, even in the midst of these deep promises of hope, uh, Jesus would soon depart, right? We, we know this because we know the end of, we know, if you've read further into John, you know the story. We know that he will depart soon. He will ascend. And as you can imagine, the disciples are hearing this, but, but still there's kind of a cognitive dissonance. There's kind of a heart dissonance. They're like, I hear you, but I don't, I don't know about this. I'm still, I'm still quite uncertain, and I'm, steer, I'm still fearful. So what further promise? The promise is, 
has God made to His people beyond His departing? And who is the guarantee that those promises will come to pass even in His absence? Well, that leads us to point three, the better helper. Point three, the better helper. Look with me at verses 15 to 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Well, as we have seen, in the midst of trouble and uncertainty, Jesus has given his people promises, as we've seen in this chapter thus far, to comfort them. The promise of a better home, the promise of a better hope in him. And here we read of another promise. And before we dive in, though, let's, let's take a step back to chapter 13 for a moment. If you remember back in chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, there Jesus gave his disciples that blueprint for cross-shaped love. And he commanded them to love one another, for it's by their love that they'll be known in the world. But then Peter took that conversation and then like ran a different direction. We see this in the, in, the, in the verses that come after of verse 35. And here, Jesus picks this back up where he left off in verse 35 of chapter 13 and tells us, his disciples, then and now, verse 15 of John chapter 14, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he repeats the same idea again in verse 21 and then again. In verse 23, Jesus really wants us to capture this. He really wants us to grasp this. 
And where do we find, though? Where do we find these commandments that Jesus is speaking of? Where do we find them? In his word. Because we never separate Christ from his word. Those two things go together. And so to love Jesus is to love and keep his word. To find his word, like the psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 10, more desirable than gold, sweeter than honey, more desirable than the drippings of the honeycomb. And so to love Jesus and to follow him is to love and obey his commandments. To love and obey his commandments is to love and obey Jesus, right? Those two things go together. Love and obedience go together. They are not at odds. And obedience flows out of love. So, do you love the commandments of Christ in the Word? Do you desire them? Do you crave them? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness through them? We ought to take inventory of our hearts. We ought to check our heart. Now here's the rub. Here's the rub, though. We cannot love Christ and his word rightly on our own. And Jesus knows this, which is why Jesus, the righteous commandment keeper, came and walked the path of obedience ahead of us to live and die in that gospel work so that his righteousness might be applied, imputed to us by the work of a better helper which Jesus knew his disciples would need then and now. And so here in verse 16, we arrive at a third promise and really a watershed moment in the gospel according to John. Here, Jesus promises that the better helper, the Holy Spirit, as it says in verse 26, is the one who will be with his people forever. And side note, we ought to note the significance in this chapter. This is one of the places in Scripture where we see the Trinity on full display. We've seen the Father. We've seen the Son. And now we see the Holy Spirit, the one true God who has eternally existed, one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, co-reigning in love and power and glory and blessing. And so, who is this third person of the Trinity? Who is the Holy Spirit? And who is the promised helper? And what does that promised help looks, look like? Well, let's, let's first start with what the Spirit is not, just briefly. The Spirit is not like the Force, like Star Wars. He's not. He's not an it. He's not an emotion. He's not a genie. He's not gender neutral. We find here that he's a he. And he's not spiritual Play-Doh that we can kind of like shape into whatever we want him to be. He's none of those things. The Spirit is none of these. So who is the Spirit according to Jesus? Well, we have six characteristics here. Six characteristics. The Spirit is our eternal helper and comforter. We see this in verses 16 and 18. He is the Spirit of truth. We see see this in verse 17. He is the Spirit of life. We saw that in verse 19. He is the Spirit who brings us into union with the Father and the Son. We see this in verses 20 to 24. He is our teacher and testifier of Jesus. In verses 25 to 26, 
And He is the Spirit of peace. We find this in verse 27. The Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, is all of these things. So let's briefly walk through these. First, the Spirit is our, our eternal helper and comforter. See this in 16 and 18. The helper, or the paraclete in the Greek, means the one who comes alongside. He is the counselor, the aid, the comforter. And he is sent to God's people in the physical absence of Jesus to aid and to comfort them eternally. That's what we find here. Second, he is the spirit of truth. Just as Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and is full of grace and truth, well, the Holy Spirit is also full of that same truth. He works in tandem, then, with God's Word. The Word and the Spirit always go together. And here we are told that though the kingdom of this world rejects the Spirit and rejects the truth, the truth dwells in and with the people of God in his kingdom. Third, he is the spirit of life. We see that in verse 19. Jesus says, because I live, did you notice? Because I live, you will live also. How will this life come to God's people? Well, through the work of the spirit. This means, beloved, that if you are a Christian, then you are, that you are spiritually alive. That is good news. You are alive, and Christ is living and surging through you. By the power of the Holy Spirit. What grace, what mercy is that? It's amazing. Fourth, he is the Spirit who brings us into union with the Father and the Son. We see this in verses 20 to 24. These verses are absolutely unbelievable. Here Jesus tells his disciples, then and now, that the Spirit brings Christians into the eternal love and union of the Trinity, now and forevermore. If that doesn't bake your noodle, I don't know what will. And this means that in life and death, if you are a Christian, then Christ has made his home in you by the person and power of the Spirit, and you have been brought into fellowship, into union with the Trinity today. And on the last day, when you enter glory or when Christ returns, you will be eternally immersed, thrown into that union forevermore. What an amazing promise. And this is all because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds. What comfort to God's people. Amazing. Fifth, the Spirit is our teacher and the testifier of Jesus. It's very critical that we get this right. Here we learn that the Spirit is sent from the Father in verse 26, in the name of the Son. The Spirit is his own person, yes. But his primary role is to highlight the person and work of Jesus, to point believers to him, to regenerate hearts by the work of the Word and the Gospel. And so make no mistake, the Spirit is Christ's representative here on earth. And the Spirit never operates apart from the Word. And the Spirit's goal is to illuminate the work of Christ in our hearts and minds and to bring into our hearts and our minds in the midst of trials and triumphs the love, humility, grace, mercy, and kindness of Jesus. 
That is the primary role of the Holy Spirit according to Jesus. And it's through the Spirit that we have, sixth, peace. He is the Spirit of peace. We see this in verse 27. A peace or shalom is a, a beautiful theme that weaves its way through all of the Bible. We could spend years just looking at the way peace is unfurled through the testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it's interesting that peace is the first word that Jesus says to his disciples after he's resurrected and comes. He, you know, he kind of walks right through that wall, appears in the room with them. He says what? Peace to you. We're going to see this again in John chapter 20. I don't know about you, though, but peace can be elusive. We think of peace, I think, often poorly. Uh, and we find it to be elusive because we think about it poorly. We think of it as merely a feeling or an emotion. We think of peace as a state of mind or a state of being. We think of peace as something gained by the right relationships, the right amount of money, the right job, right? But peace is not an emotion, simply an emotion. Peace is not like a a state of mind. No, peace is a person, namely Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace of Isaiah 9. And so, if Jesus has taken up residence in you through the Spirit by pure grace, then no matter what you encounter in this life, then you possess the gift of peace already. You possess the peace that you need to get through each day. So do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that? This promise of peace is for you today. It's one of the sweetest and most comforting promises for our anxious and troubled souls, isn't it? Well, in the end, Christ would later in John die. He would rise again and he would ascend. What would he would do? What would he would do? He would pierce the sky, create an opening, and the Spirit would descend and fall upon all believers, then and now, and bring to mind all of the promises of this chapter, and apply all of those promises to us by grace through Christ. Isn't that amazing? What comfort is this? Well, in the closing verses. In 28 to 31, Jesus tells his disciples again he's going to ascend, and he won't be able to speak to them much longer, but they should rejoice in this because he's going to the Father. It must have been very perplexing for them. And he says that all this will take place so that they do what? That they would believe. He then, he then tells them that the ruler of this world, Satan, is coming, that he will bring the powers of hell and of evil against him in Gethsemane and then at the cross. But in the end, Satan has no power, no condemnation, no claim on Jesus. And this is a sweet comfort and promise to believers who are in him, right? In the words of J.C. Ryle, listen, let us mark the difference between Christ and all others who have been born of woman. He is the only one in whom Satan has found nothing. He came to Adam and Eve and found weakness. He came to Noah. Abraham, Moses, David, and all of the saints and found imperfection. He came to Christ and found nothing at all. He was a lamb without blemish and without spot, a suitable 
sacrifice for a world of sinners. And here is the good news. That if you are in Christ, if His blood covers you, if His Spirit is at work in you, then Satan has no claim on you today or on the last day. In this life or the next. What certainty, what comfort does that promise give us? Well, we should close. In the midst of seasons of uncertainty, where can we find certainty and comfort? As I asked earlier, can we? And if we can, what promises has God given and made to His people for us to remember, to rehearse, to find comfort in? Well, He has given us the promise of a better home in Christ. He has given us here the promise of a better hope in Christ. And He has given us the promise of a better helper in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. And we can take these promises to the threshold of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we praise You and thank You that You made a way through Jesus when there was no way. Jesus, we praise You as the promise maker and promise keeper. And Spirit, we praise You and thank You for the promises that You have applied and are applying to our hearts and minds. And so, Lord, we ask that You would press those promises further into our heart. That You would apply them to our lives. And Lord, that You would give us what we have not. That You would teach us what we know not. And that You would make us what we are not. For Your glory. King Jesus. In his name that we pray. Amen.